Poker's legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness with your host, Brad Wilson. Welcome, my friend, to the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast. As always, this is your host, Brad Wilson. And before we jump into the show, I want to talk about something you may not be aware of, a sinister enemy that's hiding in the shadows called the ambiguity effect. The ambiguity effect states that decision-making is affected by a lack of information or ambiguity. The effect implies that folks tend to select options for which the probability of a favorable outcome is known, over an option for which the probability of a favorable outcome is unknown. So basically in poker, when you encounter a spot that you're unsure of, you're more likely to shut it down and play more passively than taking the more aggressive option. What this cognitive bias does is it stifles your ability to grow as a poker player, to learn, to persevere, to break through, to clear one hurdle so that you can encounter the next hurdle. This Saturday, I'll be launching a masterclass called Bluffing with Initiative that will squash the ambiguity effect in spots you have a hand with little to no equity in a bloated pot and you don't know whether you want to bet or to check. If you would like to check out my masterclass, head to ChasingPokerGreatness.com, slay the big bad ambiguity effect forever in this specific scenario. Plug in to the Chasing Poker Greatness community and get the other bonuses that I've mentioned previously. With that out of the way, now let's jump into our show. Today is WPT Day. Thomas and I are going to be breaking down just a couple of the sick bluffs that have aired on the World Poker Tour over the last two decades or so. I'm super pumped. So without any further ado, let's jump into World Poker Tour Day here on Chasing Poker Greatness. Welcome back to Hero Bluff Week here on the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast. Today's theme is the World Poker Tour. Got a couple of hands coming at you. One that is about 13 years old that features Isaac Haxton back when he had a bunch of hair. The other is very recent at the WPT Thunder Valley. Happened right before the coronavirus canceled live poker for God only knows who who knows how long this year. So let's jump into hand number one. We have Isaac Haxton versus Ryan Dot, 2007 PCA. First place is going to be 1.5 million. Second place is 861,000. That's quite a difference in first and second place payouts. About 700k. To put that in comparison, third place got 550 which is about 300. So this is a, effectively a $700,000 heads up match between Ike Haxon and Ryan Dot. Let's jump into the hand in question. So with the blinds at 100,000, 200,000 and a 20,000 chip ante, Ryan limps with a seven and a five, seven of clubs, five of spades. Ike checks his option with the deuce tray of diamonds. Any thoughts here? Thomas? I, I think including 7-5 offsuit and a limping strategy here is fine, and I don't have a great reason for Ike to 
uh, go ahead and raise here unless he wants to use a puller strategy, but checking is fine and realizing your equity. The problem with a puller strategy when your head's up is that you're basically going to be raising <laughs> pretty much most limps because you get a bunch of bad hands that you're forced to play, right? Like if you're raising the bottom of your range, you're just going to be raising way too often. So a good question to ask would be, what sort of range would you be raising with here if you are Isaac Haxton? My raising range here would probably be something along the lines of East 10 offsuit and better. Uh, and then I like to start raising a lot of suited gappers, suited connectors, sort of hands uh, just for board coverage. And I, I find, especially in heads up play that, people aren't very good at navigating these really wide formations and we're able to generate a lot of fold equity at different points in the hand. So I, I don't have a huge problem going to going to a flop with these sorts of hands. Now we're going to take a flop. The flop is the ace of clubs, queen of hearts, four of hearts. So Ryan has squadouche, as they say, with seven high. Ike flops a gut shot to a wheel. And before I go any further, I do want to say that Ryan starts the hand having Ike covered. So Ryan is the chip leader at this point. Ike checks, and now Ryan bets 300K into 440K. Mr. Haxton calls with his wheel draw. What are your thoughts here, number one, on Ryan's bet, and number two, Ike's call? So Dot's choice to bet here. I, I like, I think, range betting. Uh, it's really difficult for Ike's range to do much about it. Just this is going to be very advantageous for Dot, especially if he is limping some of the medium strength aces as well. Uh, I don't know if I would utilize this sizing. I'm okay with going a little bit smaller, but it's it's okay, completely okay. Uh, Ike's decision to continue, I like versus a smaller bet. I think it's probably too wide here to continue. So I, I would probably fold in Ike's shoes here. What do you think Ike must be thinking continuing versus a 75% pot size bet? I would imagine he's planning on, on bluffing at some point in the hand uh, if he's going to continue here. It's difficult for me to really say, though. I I don't know how he's going to construct a good defense range here and maybe he's just trying to defend more hands and thinks that a gutter ball is going to make it into a continue what i find interesting is if i'm ryan dot i'm actually likely to check back on this flop texture because i think it's so much better for me and i don't know that i do bet my ace x's when i do limp with them and i do have them or my queen x's those hands are likely for me to just check back. So I don't know how much repability I have just by betting. I understand that he's got seven high. So he wants to put out that first bet to realize fold equity. However, in a spot like this where Ike has the bottom, probably 80% of hands, I don't think you have to rush it. And I'm not so sure that, you know, top pair, middle pair fires out on this board because Ike just has a lot of hands that don't have, that aren't anything. They're just random cards that don't interact with this board at all that we'd like for him to start putting some money in. I think this is a spot where my strategy would differ heavily from yours then. 
uh, I would rather just bluff more and bet my value hands than start checking all of them uh, in a spot where my range is much stronger than my opponent's. Yeah, I think it's overall, how do we construct our range? How do we construct our ace X's and our queen X's here? Me personally, I'm checking them back and waiting for Ike to check twice and then basically taking a stab and I would assume most of the time taking it down. We can even check back, bet the turn, and then bet a lot, lot of rivers, even with our seven high, and still realize a fair amount of fold equity in the case that like Isaac turns a pair or something like that. So yeah, I guess it's the difference of range construction. Unfortunately, we don't know how Ryan Dot was constructing his ranges prior to this to sort of get a window into Ike's thought process as this hand was going down. With all that being said, Ike does call, and now we get a turn, the King of Diamonds. To recap, the board is Ace of Clubs, Queen of Hearts, King of Diamonds, Four of Hearts. So this puts up a Broadway. So Ike checks on the King, and now Ryan checks back. What are your thoughts here with you know Ryan still having 7-5 and checking back on the King? I think this is a case where we do have a range advantage, but I don't think that our range advantage on the turn is so strong that we get to continue betting everything. Uh, and I, I like the idea of just giving up with 7-5 offsuit with a no equity bluff. We've got plenty of bluffs with equity that can continue to bet. So I, I agree with checking back here. Yeah, I like to check back as well. It's not a card that you would be barreling with your ace x's or your queen x's and if you did bet a gut shot with like king jack or king 10 if you did limp with those hands pre-flop it's just it's a hand that's like way ahead way behind so there's not really much sense in betting your king x so i like to check back here i think it makes a lot of sense we still have repability heading into the river we can make a uh you know what looks to be a thin value bet with our seven high and still realize a fair amount of fold equity the river is the queen of clubs. So the flop was ace, queen, four, turn king, river pairs the queen. Now Ike bets 700K into 1 million. What do you think about Ike sizing here? So Ike sizing is maybe a little too small, actually. Um, if I were in his shoes here, I'm going to have a couple of bet sizes, probably a smaller bet size with an ace for thin value and then a massive size with a queen and some complete air balls here. And I think that I would probably be over betting the pot again, uh, probably something like 1.3 million here. I think that it's very credible that we would just call a queen on the flop and check it on the turn and then over bet the river. I think that it's less credible that dot is going to bet a queen on the flop. So I think that we actually have a pretty large range advantage at this point. And I do think we can also have Jack 10 while our opponent is less likely to. And having three high, I think we have to absolutely go for it. You absolutely have to bet. It's just what sizing do we choose, right? Because the river pairs the queen, now if dot has any ace X, they're all effectively the same because we have the board kicker. So 
Ike must be targeting ASEX when he bets the river here, right? He, he's targeting ASEX, trying to get called. I, I actually like your sizings here. I like the really big bets with our queen X's. I think we can actually size down with our bluffs just because we don't really need to invest that much. And dot is likely to be super wide. So we can realize fold equity with a smaller bet. Um, it gets interesting though, because dot goes ahead and raises to 2 million here. What do we think of this? It seems to not be particularly credible. And the reason I say that is I don't expect him, if he if he's not betting his entire range on the flop, I don't expect him to be betting his queens on the flop. Uh, and for him to check back a hand like jack 10 on the turn seems highly unlikely. So it just feels like he never has a value hand when he takes this line. And it feels like going back to Phil Ivy day, when him and Paul Jackson were putting in all those raises on the flop, he raises to 2 million. Ike has about 6.1 million total here. And basically he's saying, I don't think you have anything. I don't have anything. So let's just play a game of chicken. And if you're man enough to bet three, bet the river here with a bluff, then you just get the pot. Absolutely. And I, I remember watching this hand a couple years after the fact just because I was rather young at this point and I remember after Dot made this bet Ike's head went down to the table like he was defeated like he there was nothing he could do and then he had this realization that Dot had nothing and Ike moved all in um spoiler alert uh (laughs) yeah it's hero bluff week so the name of the theme week is the spoiler itself. I don't know that I, I would have done it after that display where it was very obvious I didn't have anything, but I guess if the opponent doesn't have anything either, as long as that nothing isn't jack high, we're probably going to get it through. If Dot calls him with seven high here, then he's basically a god of all poker gods realizing that Ike's got a bunch of busted wheel draws here in his range after the physical tell. I think I remember seeing a hand from maybe it was Tony Hawk where he, he did that. He called with like five or six high and beat the only hand possible. Who's Tony Hawk? Who are you talking about? Tony Hawk. You don't know who Tony Hawk is? The skateboarder? The skateboarder, yes. <laughs> there, there's a hand where he called with five high and one versus like three, four, or deuce four or something, and it was absolutely amazing. I feel like you're, you're just trolling me right now. I've never even heard it's of serious. this. I'll put, the, I'll put the link to that hand in the show notes because that might be on Hero Call Week whenever we get around to producing Hero Call Week. But anyway, Ike puts the money in, $6.1 million. Dot's got the seven high. He does not call, and unfortunately for Ike, Dot still goes on to take down the PCA in 2007. Fortunately for Ike, though, he turns out to be one of the crushers of all time, and he's doing so well that it was like impossible for me to even find what event this was in his Hinded Mob because he's just got so, so many results. And now coming up after the break, We're going to break down a hand involving Jake Schwartz and Tony Tran at the WPT Thunder Valley that happened just this year. Stay tuned. You don't want to miss it. 
Coach Brad here. I hope that you're enjoying the show. Just wanted to take a second to let you know, as of the release of this episode, you have a shade over 24 hours to take part in the Bluffing with Initiative Masterclass. It's happening this Saturday, June 27th, 2020, 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Sign up at ChasingPokerGreatness.com. You'll also receive two bonus videos, round twos with Matt Berkey from Solve for Why and James Split Suit Sweeney with Red Chip Poker on how to jumpstart your poker career. And you'll get plugged into the Chasing Poker Greatness private Slack group. Just the two bonuses themselves are worth much more than $50 in my opinion. So do not delay. Once the cart closes, it will be closed for a while until I decide to reopen it, which could be six months, could be a year, it could be never. So head to ChasingPokerGreatness.com, lock up your seat, and now back to the show. All right, welcome back to WPT Day. This next hand involves Jake Schwartz and Tony Tran at the WPT Thunder Valley. It's a 5K tournament. There are six players left with blind sitting at 15K, 30K with a 30K big blind ante. Kevin Rabishow limps the button with Jack 10 off, sitting on a stack of 2.7 million. Jake Schwartz with 755K completes a small blind with the King of Clubs, Nine of Hearts. Tony Tran with 780K checks from the big blind with an Ace of Spades, Four of Hearts. First things first, what do you think about Kevin Rabishow's button limp with a Jack 10? So I'm really confused here. Uh, Kevin Rabichow, for anyone that doesn't know, is a run-at-once elite pro. Uh, he's a very, very strong player. Uh, this is not a play that I would ever make. I, If I had to guess at his strategy here, he is he's just developing some sort of limping strategy just to be able to play more hands here. But I would still lean towards raising this, this hand on the button, uh, especially being 92 big lines deep. I don't see a reason to have a limping range. So we're going to consider this a teachable moment because everything that you said, you know, Kevin Rabishow, he's one of your favorite coaches for run at once. He's an elite pro. He's doing something that you don't do. Right. And I'm sure there are a lot of folks that aren't limping the button with a Jack and a 10, but the one thing that we do know is that there is a reason, right? There is a strategic reason why he's opting to limp the button whether that is Jake Schwartz and Tony Tran's three betting frequencies where he doesn't think that he can call an all in with a Jack and a 10 and they're going to be three betting too frequently, whether that is setting something up later down the pipe, as far as limping the button and being able to get away with it. I'm not exactly sure either, but if I were a tournament player, and an elite player does something like this that's just totally out of the norm. It's an opportunity to investigate a spot that we don't really understand and try to figure out why they're doing this so that we can implement it into our game. So I would take some time, really think about this, maybe tweet at him, ask him what he's thinking. But anytime you see an elite player doing something that goes against the grain, there's a very good reason for it, and it's worth investigating and figuring out the why so that you can improve your own game. So this also speaks to something I see happen in live poker specifically. Uh, It's very common for live professionals or even recreationals to see another player, another professional make what they deem a misplay, 
without even considering the merits of it. And they usually hinder their own learning by not considering all of these bizarre options before just assuming it's bad. Anytime a reputable player just does something that's just really bizarre, I think it's worthy of investigating because they're not just out there on a limb. You know, he's not just randomly clicking buttons here. There, there are some well-founded reasons. So investigate, try to figure out the why. And now we're going to move to Jake Schwartz sitting on a stack of 755K. He completes with a king and a nine. Any merit to raising here? Should we always just be completing? I think completing and raising are both fine. I think the hand's strong enough to do either. I would lean towards raising provided my stack isn't super short here. Uh, but I, with the price we're getting, calling is, is good as well. And now Tony Tran checks his option with ace of spades, four of hearts. Any merit to him getting out of line? There's already about 100, 100K in the pot. It probably depends on his stack size uh, specifically, and he's deep enough that I wouldn't be looking to do this. If he had 15 to 20 big blinds, I do think there's a case for just going all in uh, and generating as much fold equity with the ace blocker. But as is, I would just be checking behind all of the time. I would be checking here as well. So we get a flop that's monotone, a six, seven, all clubs. The blinds check, and now Mr. Rabishow also checks back. Any thoughts on that? Do we think he should be betting here? He does not have a club with his jack or his 10. I think multi-way is probably a little bit too ambitious to bet here and expect to generate many folds, especially when he has a complete no equity hand. I, I just think an ace or any club is going to continue and it's going to take more barrels than we're probably going to be willing to fire to get the folds we want. Going back to Jake Schwartz, he's got the king of clubs. So he flops a nut flush draw and Tony Tran flops top pair. Should either one of these guys be betting in your opinion? Again, it's a tricky spot because all of the ranges involved are so wide. It's against recreational specifically. I think it's completely fine to just lead out with stronger hands here. Uh, and I would classify the nut flush draw as a very strong hand here but with stronger players involved i don't think we have the luxury of doing that we could construct a betting range still but it would have to be a very small betting range and i i don't know that i would opt to do that here yeah a lot of the hands that are stronger just aren't going to bet they're going to start start out by checking so I'm cool with everybody's strategy here on the flop. All the checks, I think ace four is fine because it's a spot where if you get ripped on, if you get raised, you're likely just folding. So you can check through, get some more information based on whether or not Rabishow bets on the button, see some turns, and then make some better decisions once the water gets a little less muddied. So now we have a turn of the three of diamonds. The board now reads... Ace of clubs, seven of clubs, six of clubs, tray of diamonds. Jake, once again, checks his nut flush draw. Tony bets 80K into 120K. Kevin folds, and now the action is on Jake. What do you make of Tony's sizing? And then Jake here, do we want to rip? Do we just want to call? So Tony's sizing here seems designed to 
deny equity versus flush draws. Uh, also, betting the size probably makes it a little less likely we're going to get uh, raised by a flush draw, uh, which is a good thing when we're, our kicker's not particularly great. I don't know that we're going to be happy continuing uh, versa if we bet versus a raise. I'm trying to decide on whether I would just opt to call in Jake's shoes or whether I would raise. I think that if I had some of the stronger hands, I'm probably just going to either bet out myself. Yeah, I think I'm just going to bet out myself. So I don't think that we get to raise the the flush draw here if we don't have value ourselves to raise with. And Jake could have the best hand if Tony's just stabbing with some queen highs or jack high flush draws on the turn, trying to take it down. So I think that's more merit to just calling because we do have a little bit of showdown value with our king high with the king of clubs. So I'm with you. Let's just call here, see what develops on the river. And what develops is the four of diamonds. So now we have tray four, six, seven with the a six, seven of clubs. We have a four liner. Any five makes a straight. The river gives Tony to pair. So now Jake checks. Tony goes ahead and value bets 125K into 270K. What do you think of this value bet sizing on this board? I think the sizing is is pretty good. Uh, we could maybe bet a little bit smaller because we are on a four-liner uh, and we there's a flush possible. The flush seems rather unlikely, but the hands we're trying to get called by, even, even the t- – weaker two pairs are just kind of bluff catchers. So I, I'm on board with a smaller sizing, maybe even smaller than this 40% pot or so. I like the sizing as well. I think it's good. I think it, it accomplishes all of the objectives that Tony has. And now we get our bluffing moment here. Jake rips it in for about 500K more. And then the action is back to Tony with his two pair. There's going to be about a million in the pot with 500 to call. So you're getting about two to one here. What do we think about this? From the onset, it seems like a natural bluff candidate. Uh, Having the king of clubs uh, means our opponent can't have the nut flush here. That being said, it's not super credible that we have a flush with the line we've taken. It's very likely that we would have bet or raised at some point and haven't opted to do that anywhere. So when we jam here, the hand that we're really representing is going to be something like 6-5 suited, which doesn't seem all that likely. There's not a whole lot of combos of that. So I I like the fighting spirit. I don't think that this is a spot to go for it. It's an interesting rip, and it's hard for either player to really have a 5. I don't think Tony's betting many of his 5Xs here on the turn. So Tony... Actually, now that I think about it, I guess Tony could have four or five. So, you know, either player could turn a straight and opt to, you know, Tony could opt to bet. Jake could opt to check call or check raise with his straight. So really, if we're looking at straights that Jake has in his range, it's going to be a four or five that turns a straight that opts to not put the raise in on the turn. But like you said, it's hard for Jake to have a five in his range. He's really repping the nut flush. I do think that Jake would check down, uh, check the flop and check the turn with the nut flush. However, it's really hard to make the nut flush, right? Like a lot of the king X's that he has in his range, king, queen, king, jack, king, 10, 
king nine of clubs are all going to start raising preflop. So now we're looking at hands like king deuce of clubs, king three of clubs, king four of clubs, king five of clubs, king eight of clubs specifically. That's really all the flushes that he has in his range here. That's not that many combos. So good rule of thumb. Basically, you're getting a good price. They don't have that many combos of value. And so it really comes down to, is Jake Schwartz capable of check raise bluffing here? And we have the benefit of knowing that he is. So we can say, oh yeah, we can just call. However, you don't really know in real time whether or not he's capable of pulling the trigger in a spot like this. So I think it's actually a pretty good bluff by Jake. And I think it's a decent fold by Tony. It's just a really tough situation to navigate. So I think there is a, a very good learning moment here. And that's this, if you're in Jake's shoes here and you're trying to decide whether to pull the trigger on a bluff, you need to ask yourself what caliber of player your opponent is. Can they deduce that your line isn't actually going to have many flushes? Um, and if not, whether your line's credible or not doesn't matter. Just the fact that you block the nut flush and it's a scary board could be enough to justify going all in versus a good player may call you super light here. Yeah, these are a bunch of unknowns. Uh, Tony actually goes on to win this tournament. I don't know about his overall skill level or how Jake perceives him, but that is a good point that your actual range doesn't exactly matter so much as the perception of your range by your opponents. And so when you think about range construction here, you need to be looking at it from the lens of what is the perceived range, not what is the actual range when determining your actions, because your range is going to change based on the eyes of your opponent. Sometimes when you're playing super high level against a super high level opponent, it's going to look like one thing. And then when you're playing against lower level of opponents, your range is going to look completely different. So it's always a good thing to keep in mind that your actual range doesn't really matter all the time. Your perceived range is what matters and take your opponents into consideration before going one way or the other. Any final thoughts before we end the WPT episode of Bluff Week? I don't think so. Both of those hands were, were really cool and uh, Ike's all in is absolutely legendary and was probably my favorite bluff that I had ever seen. Many of us felt that way when it happened in real time. And luckily for the poker world, we still have Ike kicking ass 13 years later with no signs of slowing down soon. And so tomorrow we're going to get into the world of high stakes poker. Some of my personal favorite hands that have happened in poker media, going to break those down. We have another Phil Ivey appearance, more Tom Dwan, and Mr. Galfond makes an appearance as well, throwing in the bonus hand to wrap up this week. Check it out, and we'll see you tomorrow. I hope you enjoyed today's episode, World Poker Tour Day on Hero Bluff Week. Tomorrow we have High Stakes Poker coming up, so tune back in because High Stakes Poker is my personal favorite poker show of all time. See you tomorrow.